The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So while we're waiting for people to arrive, um, would it be okay if we would just sit for a few minutes? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. And um, while you're sitting, if you could bring to mind some caring moment that's happened to you recently, someone who has cared for you. Could be a small a small moment could be something big. But just let your mind roam and see if you can find some moment when you felt cared for by someone. And allow yourself to feel that. And how nice that feels to be cared for. Could be a small thing. Someone smiled to you. Or someone made dinner for you or did the dishes or or someone hugged you, listened to you. How does it feel? Safe, warm, at ease, peaceful. I remember when I was a little, very small boy, child. I'd have nightmares. And I'd crawl in bed with my mom and dad and my mom would put her arms around me. And after a while, I could go back to my own bed. 
go to sleep. And now shifting gears a bit. Think about when you recently, or maybe not so recently, have been kind to someone else. When you've expressed care and concern, compassion, love, could be in a small way, just smiling at somebody you're passing while you're walking. Are listening to their suffering. Or making dinner for them. And how does that feel? And feel the freedom in both of these. Freedom from self-concern. Freedom from self-absorption. This very natural, open human kindness and concern that we have and that everyone has. Okay, thank you. And welcome, welcome back. There's something about this group that's, that may be compelling for us, and, that's, and it's why we come. There's compassion here. All of these screens. We all wish each other well. It's a field of, a field of benevolence that's here. Safety. Beyond concepts, beyond I, me, mine, just simple human well wishing. So we can feel at ease with each other. And when we break up into small groups, know that nobody's trying to win. Nobody wants you to lose. We all want each other to win. So, so the theme today is um, not, <clears throat> not self. This self-cherishing that we have and 
And the self-reification that we do is the cause of much of our suffering. I mean, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe all of our um, fabricated suffering, you know, there's, we have physical pain, but, you know, that's a different story. The Buddha's main teaching was, uh, I teach the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. And that suffering is caused by clinging to me, or mine. He said that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as me or mine. Whoever has realized this simple truth has realized all my teachings. So we create the self and we contract around it and we, it's, you know, me, 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 and we're in our own prison and we want to win and we are all contracted around what we want and what we don't want and has nothing to do with wisdom, kindness, or compassion. has to do with clinging, aversion, jealousy, fear. Eventually leads to despair, depression. Yet openness is just a step away. In a way, openness is so easy. You don't have to really do anything to be open, to see the truth. Buddha's um, teaching to his son, Rahula, he taught his son how to meditate. And he said, develop a meditation practice that is like space. Arisen, disagreeable, agreeable, will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not not established anywhere 
Rahula, include a meditation practice that is like space. So we have this with us every moment. Space, space is here. Every moment. There's space in front of us, to the right of us, and to the left of us, behind us, above us, below us. Space everywhere. Science tells us that we, you, our space. We're made of atomic particles that are made of subatomic particles that are made of subatomic particles and so on and so on. And the, the, the smallest, teeniest nanoparticle is 99.999% Space. It's all space. And there's not a self to be found anywhere in space. Like the Buddha said to Rahula, just as space is not established anywhere. And if we can have this openness and turn to it again and again and again, turn to this openness. Agreeable, disagreeable, will not invade your mind and remain. Sounds easy. But we just keep turning to it. That's our practice. Turning to openness. Turning to awareness over and over again. That's our practice. And it begins to seep in to ourselves. Seep into our heart. Seep into our mind. Relaxing. Opening. Into just... Simply being is enough. We don't need a reified self just to be. Yet we have habits, imprints, that have been created in this life that are very sticky. Imprints of self. How do we practice with these sticky imprints? Well, re- returning to space, returning to openness is a wonderful way to practice.
practice with that. Practicing with kindness. Practicing with receiving kindness is another way. Western therapy really helps with this. Some kind of therapy advises us to give ourselves a hug when doubt arises, when self-hatred arises, when anger arises, when fear arises, and it's really sticking an openness This doesn't seem to work. So like my mother held me when I had a nightmare. Holding yourself. Having kindness to yourself. Having maybe a conversation with yourself. With your amygdala. Hey, my amygdala, my dear amygdala, my dear, what you're creating here is real. I'll grant you that. It's real. But my dear, it's not true. And let it remain as long as it wants. Holding it in kindness. With the confidence in fundamental openness. Confidence that when all of ourselves come and go and come and go. What remains is this openness, this space, this awareness. This is what Buddhism is really all about. Liberating us from this oppressive sense of self. And there are many ways to approach this. I'm sure in your, in your wisdom, in your years of practice, in your years of living, you've developed your own ways of relieving yourself from the prisons of self. And that's what we can discuss in small groups with each other. What is your wisdom about this self that's been hanging around all of our lives? Causing us so much pain in all of our lives. 
so many practices. The Buddha taught that clinging is the issue. Aversion and grasping is the problem. And I think more central isn't my fear of you or my anger toward you or my wanting from you, but it's of my aversion to my own thoughts, my clinging to my own thoughts. That's the problem. If we didn't stick to our thoughts, if we didn't fight with our thoughts, if we didn't be in conflict, they're just thoughts. They just are thoughts. We're not going to stop thinking. Bahia, a desperate wanderer, came to the Buddha. And he begged the Buddha, Buddha, please, please teach me. And the Buddha re- refused him three times, but on the third time he did teach Bahia. And he said to Bahia, and Bahia was afraid he was going to die before he heard Buddha's teachings, before he could become free. And that's what turned Buddha's heart. And Buddha said to him, Bahia, Be open. He didn't say be open, but he essentially said be open. He said, well, let me read you what he said. Um, in, in seeing, let there be seeing. In hearing, let there be hearing. In cognizing, in thoughts, let there be cognizing. So just letting it be. He says, when for you, the seeing is the seeing, the hearing is the hearing, the cognizing is the cognizing. When we don't grasp on in aversion or clinging to our experience, particularly to our thoughts, When you are not in that, you are not there. When you are not there, you are not here, nor there, nor in between. This just is, justice is the end of suffering. If we can allow ourselves to simply be And then we stick, and then we relax, and we turn to being again and again and again, grounded in the body, grounded in the breath, returning, open heart, clear mind.
and a Bahia was awakened. He was fully awakened. And an hour later, he was gored by a cow and died. So let's do a brief, just a brief meditation now, and then we'll go into groups and discuss this really rich and central topic. It's grounded in the body. Spine loosely erect. Shoulders open. Heart open. Noticing the breath. Changing every microsecond. Noticing sensations in the hands. Changing every microsecond. And the legs, the feet. We call them legs. But what are they? Changing sensations. And for you, who is this me? Where is me? This me that we've been carrying around all of our lives. What is it? Where is it? Are your hands me? No, they're my hands. Are your feet, your toes, me? No, they're my toes. Is your breath me? No, it's my breath. Maybe your feeling is me. No, it's my feeling. 
Maybe your thoughts, your cognitions are me. These millions and millions of ever-changing cognitions, how could they be me? And anyhow, they're my thoughts. When we look, really look for me. There's nothing to be found. Are my perceptions me? My hearing, my sight, my taste, my perceptions. Yet we can't, as long as much as we look, we can't find any me any substantial, concrete, reified me anywhere. And we can rest in the unfindable. Letting it all go. Release, ease, peace, maybe happiness in the non-suffering, in the simple non-suffering of this openness that is not clinging to a me. We don't have to do anything. Just be. And let the cognized be the cognized. Let the sounds be the sounds. Let the sights be the sights. Let the sensations be the sensations. So it's not nothing. It's everything. This emptiness of self is everything. This emptiness is fullness. It's awareness and all of the qualities 
that emerge from this awareness. Kindness. Peace. Ease. Well-being. So, our practice is just to investigate, perhaps, and let go, and turn to openness. Many times, all right, well, thank you. Open your eyes when you're ready. So, what is your wisdom about? I wrote a bunch of reflections, but essentially, what's your wisdom about this point? And what are your practices about this point? Welcome back. How was it? (laughs) How about a few of you share a little bit of the wisdom that you heard? I'm not going to ask you to share your own wisdom because you'll maybe be too shy, but share the wisdom you heard from someone else. We would love to hear. We need your wisdom. And if you would be so good as to share your own wisdom, that would be magnificent. Please just, uh, if you would be so generous as to contribute, just unmute yourself and start talking. I just want to say that I really appreciated the smaller groups. There were three of us in our group, and I felt like we had a much richer discussion uh, than uh, in the uh, the six or seven person groups. So that's just feedback for Robert. Good. Anything else? Yeah. I was just feeling that, um, acknowledging that it's both uh, really scary. I can even get melodramatic about it, say terrifying to think, I don't have a self um, and that I don't get a whole lot of reassurance from intellectually going through, where is it? My big toe, my thumb, whatever. I don't connect with that, but I do connect with the feeling of spaciousness that I feel in nature. um, That that's like a solution, a relief um, um, that I'm willing to let in and will hopefully help me remember more frequently because the key is mostly I forget during the day that 
um, my small little narrow concerns are suffocating um, and that I forget that I want to let go, um, that it's not necessarily having my clothes ripped off, but, it, but it's, uh, or maybe that is a good uh, metaphor, and then jumping into a lake on a hot day. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Don't be afraid of that fear. It'll go away. It'll pass. It's really common when we start touching into this, that there's no one here. That the fear comes and the fear passes. And it's very common experience. But something wonderful remains. Something wonderful is always here. Awareness. Peace. Kindness. Love, ease, all kinds of wonderful things emerge out of this emptiness. Someone else? Last May, I went to a five-day retreat that was sponsored by Tricycle Magazine and Spirit Rock. And um, it, it was about the subjects of aging, illness, and death. And one of the common denominators um, in our five days together was that there were very few places to talk about this. And today is my first day here, and I wanted to thank everyone because what a golden opportunity to sit for two hours and explore different aspects of this. So thank you all. Here. Maybe one more. I have something goofy that came into my head in my sitting this morning about self. And I'm always up for goofy if it has application. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with paper dolls from way back when. Probably the guys, not too much. Hate to be sexist. But I had this image of the paper doll figure and then putting on different garments as I create a self. So as I told the small group, one of my favorite garments is, I am someone who is right. Oh, I'm going to put on the garment of being right. A new one came to me. I'm someone who keeps a clean house. I put on that garment. And then the problem is, when I fall short of any of those aspirations, it's almost always followed, or it's, it's recognized by self-judgment. Oh, I'm not, a, I'm not right. Ouch, you know, oh, the house isn't well kept and someone drops in. Ouch. So any of those garments are aspects of a self that I create. And so watching them, being prepared for the garment, falling short, my self-judgment, and then working at letting go or saying, these are just garments, you know, this is not an ultimate self. This is a functioning self at some level. Anyway, I must have liked paper dolls in the old days. I did too. And I love your analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else that just needs to be said, can be said? Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you all for 
your participation and your wisdom and your care. And now we will transfer to one of my favorite people and teachers, Robert, great teacher, wonderful teacher and wonderful person, as is Fiona, and my other my other favorite person and teacher, but now it's time for for Robert. Right, thank you, thank you, David. And um, <clears throat> I would like to suggest that we take a five minute break here uh, because we've been going for a while and I've been on back-to-back -back Zoom calls this morning <laughs> and, I, and I need a five minute break right now. So uh, let's do that and uh, I will start up right after um, uh, 12 o'clock, very, very shortly. So maybe three, four, five minutes. Okay. All right. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay, everyone, <clears throat> looks like most of us are back, at least the ones who are going to stick with us to the end. So welcome back, and um, I'd just like to begin by thanking David for the beautiful first part of our gathering today for leading us in those meditations and pointing us into this direction of non-self, looking at that as a topic and a theme for the day. So um, uh, I have a job to do to follow, to follow in that, this, the footsteps of that talk. And I, I, I want to try to sort of keep to the theme a little bit. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about um, uh, the process of self-acceptance. So we're talking about a non-self, and now I'm going to talk about self-acceptance. So, but I, I hope I'll say a few things here um, that have been inspired. I've been inspired by teachings that I've received from my teachers that I'm going to share with you, and that in the process of um, examining this idea of self-acceptance, uh, we also get a chance to look at the um, uh, the illusion of self, shall we say? So when when we take time to inquire into the question of self acceptance in the context of uh, Buddhist practice or Buddhist meditation. Uh, we see that it's actually not about a self. It's not about a me, a mine, or an I. Rather, we discover that it's about psychological behaviors that we take to be ourselves. So I want to repeat that. When, when we look into this question of self-acceptance, we actually see that it's not about the self. It's not about me, mine. It's not about I. 
Rather, what we discover is that it's about psychological behaviors that we take to be ourselves. So to develop self-acceptance in the context of these kinds of behaviors, we really do have to know where we are, what's happening in our experience, and um, what resources we have with us. What can we draw on to sort of stabilize things so that we can understand what's really happening? What uh, costume we're putting on our paper doll, that's, that's what it means in practical sense. And so this means that we begin to cultivate a radical sort of honesty about our strengths and our weaknesses. And in order to do that, we have to, you know, uh, we have to have mindfulness and, and clear understanding about what is actually happening. And, and in order to have that level of, of, honesty, it requires courage and a commitment to living in intention, or excuse me, living in integrity with our deepest core intentions, because uh, as someone just shared with us a few minutes ago, when we contemplate this idea of no self, it can really be disorienting and, and, and scary when you touch it for the first time, or as not even for the first time. It can, it can be disorienting for us because we don't normally live from that place. So as we practice and we cultivate mindfulness and we try to cultivate equanimous um, observation, um, there's a growing awareness in us of familiar thoughts and emotions, and we see how those things arise and pass away in our experience, how they begin to emerge. And when we see the momentum, the just the sheer force of our mental inclinations and habits, we see them as a flow of experience. We just see it's like we're in a river and these things are just carrying us along. And when we begin to perceive that in that way, we gradually come to see that our thoughts and emotions and our behaviors are conditioned activities, that they're a process. They're not a self or some identity. They're not me or mine or I. They're not my finger, my toe, my ear, or my nose. They're simply a process of conditioned activities. So instead of finding a me who's doing something, thinking, planning, worrying, strategizing, what we find is that there's an underlying conditioned flow of activities, a process itself that's generating this sense of me in, in my belief system. It's like, you know, I, I have a clean house. I do too. I like a clean house. I have a clean house. I, 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 I wear this costume, you see, and it's like me, me, me. This is how we create it and how we get sort of hooked by 
believing in it. And, and when we begin to see this, it's really helpful in an immediately practical way. And it gives us the ability to moderate or completely let go of these habit-forming activities. It's just a clean house. It's just uh, fill in the blank. Okay. So before they become like ingrained mental formations that adversely affect the quality of our life and that really obscure our understanding and our insight, they, they confuse us, they cloud our mind because we're so invested in this projection of self and we're so invested in protecting this sense of self. And I'm speaking in an impersonal way, but I'll speak in a personal way. This happens to me. And, uh, you know, it's humbling to actually see that. So it's through wise investigation, it's through actually taking the time to look and to look into and to think about these things that we discover that instead of a me who's doing something, like I said, thinking, planning, worrying, strategizing, we see just this process itself that generates this sense of me. So, <clears throat> so <clears throat> these are the kinds of activities of mind, mental activities and, you know, bodily sensations and feelings and emotions that really hook us and trap, trap us so that we can't just rest into the awareness that David was pointing us to. We can't just rest in the feeling of spaciousness. So whenever we can separate the activity from the image or, or, or the perception that triggers the activity and simply see it for what it is, we literally cut off the source of fuel that keeps us going and believing in those things. See, when we see a thought as a thought, it's seen, it's exposed. When we see a costume that we're wearing as a self, as a costume that we're wearing in, as a self, it's seen, it's exposed. So that's what mindfulness is. This is how simply seeing frees us. So the activity itself actually begins to lose steam and it often just fades away without any further effort from us. It's simply seeing it. Yep, that's the hat I'm wearing today or that's the mood I'm in right now. We see it as a mood. We see it as something that's arising and passing away. Okay, so the process also reveals to us a multitude of afflicted and unnecessary psychological kinds of proclivities that generate suffering in us, that keep us confused, that hook us, that take us down one rabbit hole after another. So one way that we can cultivate this quality of self-acceptance to, you know, to actually See, wow, this is really happening to, to me. 
you know, maybe there is no self, but right now this is happening to me. So one way that I think we can, and that I'm going to offer, is by being open to and just sustaining the awareness of the activities of mind that are filled with criticism and judgment and harshness and feelings of aversion towards others and feelings of guilt. So these difficult, conflicted kinds of things um, are, in some way, they're easy to notice. In some way, they're easier to notice than some of the more wonderful feelings of generosity and love and so on and so forth. And for the purposes of what I'm saying here, we begin to see in the seeing of this painful activity, we begin to see it for what it is, and we begin to be able to unplug from it and release it. And this, excuse me, I've got allergies. I'm trying to release my cough here. But this is... It's a perfect example of how people can begin to cultivate really deep and profound experiences of compassion. So it is possible for us to cultivate a stillness of heart that is responsive to the ever-changing activities of our lives and that's able to allow and hold all of our feelings and perceptions exactly as they are in a spacious and non-reactive space. So that space that David took us to, this non-reactive openness, it's able to hold everything, even though the small me wants to assert itself, I am here, I am a self. So <clears throat> when, when, equanimity around all of this when some sort of balance around all of this is absent it's so easy for us to just slip into these old habits where we we default to despair or we default to you know bursts of anger or irritability or frustration where we deny our sugar coat what's what is really habitual and confused mind states. So uh, I, I want to say here that equanimity, um, it's said that equanimity retains empathy, and I agree with this. That is, equanimity is not indifferent to our experience, to the ways that we want to like, rest in spaciousness, but maybe just can't, we're just not there yet. So <laughs> equanimity isn't indifferent. It's just absolutely patient. And this is an important thing. When things are not going well, we don't are we don't, you know, just give up and throw in the towel. And when things are going well, we don't float off into some sort of ecstatic state. We simply see what's happening. (laughs) 
I apologize for this. I have a, I'm not sick. I, I just have this chronic allergy thing that sometimes comes up when I'm giving a talk. So I do apologize. So whenever we're able to practice acceptance, you know, whether we're meditating or in our day-to-day experience, we notice our thoughts and emotions with kindness and with empathy rather than with judgments or with reactive narratives and stories of approval or disapproval, this sense of self-criticism and self-judgment. And we begin to see patterns of thoughts and behaviors as they ebb and flow and they come and go in our experience without being taught by them, without being sucked in or overwhelmed by them. And this is really an important skill. As we, as we practice and as our practice matures and gets deeper, <clears throat> we just begin, we begin to recognize that these things are happening in our lives. We begin to see things in a way that's almost, um, you know, for me, sometimes I, I've experienced that it, it as a sense of, you know, deepening resilience where something might have triggered me for quite a long time. Like this cough might have thrown me for a loop, and I would think, oh, my God, I'm giving a talk, and this is this is nasty. It's a cough. It's just a cough. And I wish it wasn't there. Yes, it's true. I wish it wasn't there. But it is, and I'm going to do my best to go on. So just seeing these patterns of thoughts and behaviors, the way and reactions, the way they ebb and flow and come and go without being drawn into them, is really an important skill, and it's a it's a way of experiencing a sense of freedom. It's like the cough is triggering me. I get thrown off balance, out of presence, and the time it takes to recover to baseline, the presence again, is the measurement of resilience. And I begin to see that that's getting stronger and stronger. And this is one of the benefits of practice. This is how we can um, see that even in our experience, even if we think nothing is happening, when we just take the time to look, we can see that something actually is happening. And it allows us to witness what we often mistakenly take to be ourself for what it really is. It's a dynamic, continuous process of impulses of thoughts of reactions followed by new impulses thoughts and reactions coming and going ebbing and flowing where is the me it's a process these these are are what we refer to or what is referred to in buddhism as causes and conditions these are the causes and conditions that are part of each of our experience and they're the process that is known as karma. And while they create the impressions of an abiding self, they don't arise from, nor do they define in any way some abiding permanent self. There's no self to be found. 
they're not solid. They're not historical. They're not a being, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves that they are. They're not. The person you were when you were a young child isn't the person you became when you were an adolescent, isn't the person you became when you were a young adult, isn't the person that you became when you were in the midst of your working years, isn't the person you are now as we're beginning to go through the aging process and all of us are experiencing things in a new and really wonderful way. So as we begin to cultivate the ability to maintain some sort of focus on our mind states and our thoughts and our emotions, which in Buddhism is referred to as dhammas, we begin to notice that they all finally cease to be they end, not usually in some shocking or abrupt stopping, but in a gradual sort of fading away and unraveling. You see? The things that triggered me at one point, maybe they still trigger me, but they don't trigger me in the same way. So it's not like suddenly there was a trigger and now there's not. It's like I'm just noticing this gradual shifting change just by being sensitive and being willing to pay attention. And the very same thing is true of their arisings. Dhammas don't usually suddenly arise out of nowhere. They come together. That is, they're compounded from causes and conditions such as the things that we like or the things that we don't like, the things that we believe in, and the things that we hold to. This is one way of describing what is referred to as dependent arising. So <coughs> this insight deepens our understanding and our appreciation for impermanence for Nietzsche, and we begin to grok, we begin to directly experience the fundamental truth of the insubstantiality and the dependent arising of all phenomena, of all Dhamma. Everything that arises passes away, including our bodies, our thoughts, our emotions, of beliefs. This is true. So these two understandings, not self and impermanence, when we fully realize and release the mind from the momentum of these life-defining de patterns and habits and attachments, we experience a kind of freedom, a kind of spaciousness where we can rest in this place of, of who knows, I, I'm not going to put a word to it, where we can rest in freedom. So the equanimity that expresses as self-acceptance, as I've been talking about it here, it enables us to keep our heart mind open and in touch so we can 
So we can look wisely at our experience and investigate it. You see, when, when we're agitated and thrown off our game, when we've fallen off our balance beam and, and our nervous system is, is gone into, you know, hyperdrive and we're dysfunctional, it's not so easy to reflect on these things. See? That's like the, the teachings. Buddhism, one of the wisest teaching is don't wait until you're on your deathbed to begin to practice. You see, because it's not likely that you're going to be able to stabilize your mind at that point. So, so we, we, begin to recognize these things and we begin to recognize that, you know, the mind that's agitated, the mind that is, you know, gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak, the nervous system that's out of control, simply is not conducive to the kind of insight that our practice delivers for us or, or gives us access to. So just to see this and to see yourself kindly and with, with a sense of the willingness to be generous to yourself and to recognize that what you're going through, everyone else is going through. And the way that you wish to be happy and free from suffering is something that everybody shares. So this, this way of looking at things, it supports, you know, a growing capacity in us to trust whatever we're going through, whether it's easy or difficult, whether we think it's good or it's bad, it all arises due to dependent conditions, changing causes and conditions, a process. It's not because it's who we are. It's not because we're bad or we're good or our house is clean or our house is messy. <laughs> Thank you for giving me the, the opportunity to use this example because it's so practical and so real. Things always, always change. This is an undeniable truth. And if we can learn to accept this, we can begin to release our mistaken belief that there's an abiding and permanent self that can be found in the process of these changing conditions. You see, it's like a habit. We think of ourself as a self, as something that's permanent and abiding, but in fact, it's a process. It's just things are arising and shifting and changing. So, in this way, we can begin to take responsibility for the causes and conditions that our mind encourages in the present without drowning in the errors of our past. We don't have to get lost in regret and so on and so forth. We can choose to cultivate new, wholesome habits of mind. So. This is really the fruit of our practice. This is the fruit of self-acceptance. And this is realized, this is found in the spaciousness 
the freedom and the stillness of awareness or of equanimity as as I was framing this talk. So this is this avenue of investigation can bring you to a place of tremendous peace and release where we can touch these qualities of love or spaciousness or profound stillness. So those are some of my thoughts sparked by David's talk. And um, I hope that they've been useful. I was going to put you into a breakout room, but um, Fiona will will take over in a few minutes, but I want to open it up if anybody has any comments or questions about anything that I said, um, I would be so willing and happy to talk to you about it. And if there are no questions, I'm going to turn it over to Fiona. But please don't be shy. This is an opportunity, and this is a community where whatever any of us share, we all we all share it. Um, David, I do have a question, or Robert, I have a question. Sharing. Um, okay. Yes, I'm. Uh, it's hard for me to get there, but you started to say about the the processes you're suggesting, and I think you talked about looking at the causes and conditions or karma and then not self and impermanence. And, but you don't need to really indulge hugely in the errors of the past, um, but have this avenue of investigation. And so I need some clarity about what you're suggesting as the avenue of investigation. An avenue of investigation would be, um, the actual way that you practice in in your daily life as well as on the cushion. It's just the process of, of being willing to be with your own mind from time to time and as often as possible, but from time to time at least, to cultivate this way of looking at things. You see? So, so... If you sit down to meditate, or when I sit down to meditate, I oftentimes encounter a mind that is not the way that I would like the mind to (laughs) behave, but it is the way the mind shows up. And in simply allowing that mind to reveal the arising and the ebbing and flow of whatever is happening in that without resisting it, there's a kind of opening that allows this awareness, this quality of awareness to, to become a refuge, to become a place of, of, um, of deep knowing. So, so okay. I just, I, the, the process is one of 
kindness and patience and being willing to understand, being willing to at least think about that things don't necessarily come and go in a black and white sort of way, that there's a kind of gradual unfolding. You see, we've all been practicing for years. Many of us have been practicing for decades. Now, um, and one of the things that I've learned in my own personal practice is that it's not a one and done. It's not, it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong journey. And I'm so grateful for it. And I'm so grateful to recognize that and allow that generosity towards myself and, 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 and also towards other people, because I know that other, I'm not in any way, you know, special or, or in any way, you know, uh, damaged because I don't have instant awareness or instant enlightenment. So just to be with yourself in a very honest way. That's how you cultivate it. Okay. Is that? Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, well, what I get from that, well, see, I see that as mindfulness. As It is. However, some, sometimes I've had a negative bias and more and more now I'm having your, I don't know if you can call it positive, a different bias, the bias of generosity and kindness when something arises or goes within me instead of criticizing and attacking that, having a love towards it or a kindness towards it okay. has really helped my opening to whatever arises, I guess you could say. Um, so. And, and that, that practice of recognizing what those feelings feel like those feelings are just as real as the negative feelings. Sometimes the negative feelings catch our attention, but you begin to practice by noticing what those other feelings feel like, because then you can, then you realize at a certain point that you have a choice. You have a choice. I'm, I'm upset now, but I don't have to go down that rabbit hole. You see, I don't. So even if you do go down that rabbit hole and you know you've gone down the rabbit hole, it's a completely different experience than if you go down the rabbit hole and you don't know what's happening, you're just reacting. That's the blessing yeah. of mindfulness. Great, great. I mean, and Gil's thing today was you, no. You say, no, not this. I don't want to go down this road now. Right. Okay, Good. thank you. <laughs> All right, I saw one more hand, and then we're going to turn it over. Is it okay? Yeah. All right. Me? Mary, I see your hand up. Yes. Um, you know, I I would appreciate it if you would say a little bit more about dependent co-arising. Just when I think I understand it, then it kind of slips around. Okay. Uh, so if you would say a little bit more about dependent co-arising, I would appreciate it. You know what? Um, I would, but that is a big topic. So maybe we could talk about that offline if you wanted to, because I want to be able to give Fiona uh, some time here. So thank you for the question. And um, I think it's time for me to pass the baton to my, my revered colleague, Fiona. And 
Thank you all for listening to my thoughts and for engaging in this conversation afterwards. And Jean, thank you for the example <laughs> of the house. <laughs> all right, Fiona, the floor is yours, my friend. Well, um, let's uh, just be quiet a little bit. <laughs> it's been a lot of words, um, a lot of uh, sort of the deepest core things here. Just maybe just uh, rest for a minute. Sort of re come back to the body. Just what, just the simplicity right now. Body sensations and um, our breath, just we're still. The simplicity of just uh, being in the body and the breath. Relaxing, um, as Gil would call it, the thinking muscle. Just uh, deep breath and um, easing. Just being simple, being here. Okay, well, thank you for being with us together. And um, I, this morning, reread um, David's letter that we sent out um, talking about uh, the practice of vipassana or looking. And this balance of our lives, which we, you know, day to day, the relative life that we're engaging in. And then the teachings that lead us often, it's referred to as absolute teachings. And, and where does this intersect, you know? Um, in a, a group earlier this week, a uh, small group, uh, David had uh, used the term real but not true, and he mentioned that again this morning. You know, our feelings, our experiences, our thoughts, they're real. They're not not real, but are they true? You know, what is really deeply abiding wisdom in all this? What came to me um, is, uh, came back years ago, I was uh, going through a program in, a graduate program in uh, natural science illustration. And um, 
my background was in art, but a lot of the other participants were scientists, <laughs> botanists and archaeologists and veterinarians. And we all were together looking, learning how to look um, and record, take in and record what we saw. And I, this really felt like so much for me in practice um, to go out and look without expectations, uh, without the mind saying, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> Maybe not. And um, there were two tools. Uh, first, I'll just uh, share... Uh, my background was in art, and um, in college I had to take a science class. Uh, I thought, okay, I'll do botany. No blood, you know. It's okay. Um, I remember this was the first time that I looked through a microscope. It was a dissecting microscope, but what it, I was looking at was the inside of a flower that is never seen except maybe by a bee or a humming. <laughs> so small. And I was totally, it was almost a, a religious experience of perceiving the beauty in something that I would never see. And there it was, this incredible beauty. In my illustration class, um, and of course, we were given a hand tool. We had a magnifying glass, so we'd go in and look deeply. And this other glass was called uh, a reducing lens. I would hold it up to your artwork, and it was as if you had stood back, you know, 10, 20 yards to look at it. And looking up close and looking far away, these two ways of looking. The reduction lens was like looking at things with this bigger picture. So, oh, as I was working on the artwork, I could see, oh, there's a problem here, and this shadow isn't right, and, and uh-oh, you know, and I've got to work, and I've got to fuss, and i got to, and then I'd hold up the reduction lens, and I was like, oh, no big deal. It's just part of this bigger picture. And to me, in my practice, I feel that that is, for me, how I feel about resting in awareness. It's like backing up and we're looking at the bigger picture, not just where am I caught? What's going on? What do I have to worry about? It's like, oh, I can step back here. And there's beauty here. Oh, there's a little, maybe... I can't even see that flaw anymore. The bigger picture. Um, years ago, um, we lived, um, my husband and I, in our early years of marriage, we lived at a ranch uh, in the foothills near where I live. Uh, it was an educational ranch. Beautiful valley. On our days off, we'd take a hike on the ridge overlooking what is now Silicon Valley. And I remember thinking it was so healing to sit there and look at the buzz 
all these lives and fussing and worlds and problems and getting a little distance is like, okay, this is, I can appreciate this. And it's almost, it has a beauty. I'm not right there. And I think in this practice of ours, to honor what arises and to look at it and not, and also be able to look deeply enough to see, oh, it's changing, you know? And also, when the mind gets quiet enough, to be able to, oh, I can step back with my reduction lens and look at this. And actually, it's, there's a beauty here. And there's a bigger picture. Um, and that is also a path, I feel, of looking at this I, me, and mine. You know, if I look deeply, oh, that's an emotion and it's changing and it's coming and going and it's gone. Um, or I can step back and think, oh, what a relief. I'm not stuck. There's this bigger, bigger container. This last letter, you know, looking at I, me, and mine, and what brings about our sense of contraction and suffering. And this morning was so touched by Gill's teaching, and maybe a lot of you listened, about opening our hearts to the wider world right now. Um, and stepping up, you know, hiking up to the ridge and looking out. You know, taking our vision away from here and, and moving out to just open our hearts to um, the suffering in Haiti, the fear and suffering in Afghanistan, or we have smoke here in the Bay Area now, not bad, but a reflection of the deep suffering in our home state of California, the fires. We mentioned, you know, it's Southeast Asia and India with COVID rising and not the ability to be able to treat and care for people. And that was not a sense of heaviness, but an actual, like, heart opening. This is why we practice, both for our own release and for the release of all sentient beings. And can we do this practice, however we meet it, uh, with a kindness, as Robert was talking about, a compassion and an openness towards our own suffering, to be able to relax around it, relax around seeing what it is that's arising and not grasping it, worrying it, uh, like a splinter, you know, don't keep rubbing the splinter, you know, it's just going to hurt more. Yeah. So back off. How to look at our own lives. Here we are in a 
senior sangha. We've been in this embodied life a good while, watching the changes outside, inside, momentary changes in our thinking and our moods, looking in the mirror. Look at this. What do we see? It's change. And David talking about just being able to not wring our hands. Oh no, yet another change. But to see what is the path to liberation in here. And it's, as for me anyway, it's a stepping back. What a gift this embodied life is. And what a gift to be able to see and start experiencing or continue to experience the shifting nature of all of this. There's no structure we have to protect. (laughs) There's no me here, as our practice will sort of show us over and over again. We certainly experience this life, but it's not a single abiding anything. Can that be freeing? When the contraction of our thinking or our emotions loosens up, Gill talks about this, and and I and hope, hopefully we have experienced this. What arises is an ease, often beautiful qualities, deeply inherent beautiful qualities that can sort of infuse us and go out into the world as and touch those around us. Maybe you take a minute and just think in our own practice, What does it feel like when we can step back, take a breath, step back a little bit, and look, open the lens, what are we seeing here? What else is here besides my worry? What's the beauty of, gosh, yesterday my neighbor, (laughs) I have a compost pile. Knocked on the door, opened the door, and she's bought me a bag of bunny poop. I mean, and I thought, bless her heart, you know, this generosity. I don't know too many people would be thrilled, but I was, and the compost pile will be. This cycle, you know, and and, uh, this simple generosity. I want to hold that cherish that.
found a poem I had um, discovered years ago when I was uh, transitioning from a job that I'd had for many, many years, close to 25 years. And uh, at the time, it was quite a, quite a shift, quite a loss, quite a change. And uh, in retrospect, could never know when things drop away what arises in our lives and what goodness can arise. And um, as a senior, you know, we don't know. We're moving into a new a phase of life. We're all just discovering, what is this? What is this time in our... And what can we do in our minds and hearts and our practice to make this a deep and rich and full experience? So I, I hope it's okay to share this. Um, so it's Mary Oliver from a book, What Do We Know? This uh, particular poem is called Now Are the Rough Things Smooth. Now are the rough things smooth, and the smooth things stand in flickering slats facing the slow tarnish of sunfall. Summer is over, or nearly, and therefore the green is not green anymore, but yellow, beige, russet, rust. All the darknesses are beginning to settle in, and therefore, why pray to permanence? Why not pray to impermanence, to change, to whatever comes next? Willingness is next to godliness. Once I watched a swallow playing with a feather high in the blue air. The swallow wanted to fly and frolic. The feather just wanted to float. Many times the swallow dropped the feather, which drifted away, then went diving and careening after it. There are so many things to do in this world and so many things to be done. Right now, I'm glad to be agile and insistent, but later, then I'll be happy to give up the quick burst, oh darling and important world, and just float away. And therefore, why pray to permanence? Why not pray to impermanence, to change, to whatever comes next? Let's just uh, sit for a bit.
May we all relax and trust an inner wisdom that can arise when we open our hearts and we relax the mind. When we let go even a little bit what is allowed in and what can arise out. May our good hearts, our hearts of compassion, kindness towards self and towards any one or anything that we meet in this life. May we be open. May we be kind. And may we be a comfort to ourselves and to others. And may our good intentions heal. in large or small ways, this world that so needs this love and compassion. Thank you, David and Robert and all of you for your time together. Blessings. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Beautiful, Fiona. Thank you for coming and joining with us, joining with each other, sharing this wisdom, sharing these blessings, sharing this openness. And we began today feeling how wonderful it is to feel cared for. Remember that? And how wonderful it is to feel caring. We can give this gift to others. We can give others the gift of feeling cared for and allow them to feel so good just the way we feel. So maybe make that a vow if you want. I want other people in my life to feel so good. I want them to, I want to give them the gift of feeling cared for. My loved ones. Maybe even the people I pass in the street with a smile. The dedication is... Is, is a big caring, caring for all beings. And in a way, it's wonderful to really make it big. I mean, all beings, everywhere, you know, just this big, big release of self-concern, of self-absorption, of the painfulness, 
of me, myself, and mine, making it this big. May all beings be happy. Even beings that haven't even been born yet and beings that are passed away now. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be liberated from their self-cherishing. May all beings everywhere abide in a happiness, abide in a joy that knows no suffering, knows no sorrow. May all beings everywhere dwell in equanimity, without aversion, without attachment to their own identities or to anyone near and far. So thank you all so much for being here. See you soon. See you in about a month. Robert, would you like to say have a, a passing word, please? I just want to say, I just want to <clears throat> echo what the two of you have said and uh, Thank you for the beautiful sharings that you did. I want to thank everyone for being here. And um, the smile that David is suggesting we give to strangers on the street, I would say let's look around the computer screen right now, the Zoom screen, and give those big ear-to-ear grins to one another as an act of love and generosity. And come off of mute and let's say bye. And if if you speak another language first, say bye in your own language. So, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Be well.